We make decisions every day, but these days those decisions, big and small, can feel paralyzing. Welcome to Deciding Factors, a new podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. Each week I'll talk to a world-class expert who has faced incredibly tough decisions and can offer unique insights to help you navigate the decisions you face. I am excited today to be joined by Ron Klain, who during the Obama administration served as the United States Ebola Response Coordinator. He also served as Chief of Staff to Vice President Joe Biden and Vice President Al Gore. Ron's experience is so relevant to this moment, and he can give us insight into our response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the decisions we could have made differently to mitigate the risks, and the economic and health repercussions that are likely to come. Hey, Ron, great to have you with us today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. It's kind of surreal when I think about it. You and I were walking through the streets of New York City on March 11th. I looked back and uh, and saw the date. That was quite a day. That evening, the president addressed the nation. It was also the day that the WHO declared COVID a global pandemic. Uh, personally, that was the last day that I was in the office. I worked remotely uh, from, from there on out. It seems like it was a pretty meaningful inflection point, particularly for those of us that are in New York. I'm curious, looking back, you know, now over the course of these consequential, you know, five weeks, what has most surprised you in the last month and and what have we done right and what have we done wrong? Look, I think that on balance, what we've done wrong is more than what we've done right. And it's because people weren't taking it seriously before that day, notwithstanding the many warnings that we had. And those warnings were largely ignored, as were the warnings that came out of China and December, the declaration by the World Health Organization of a public health emergency of international concern in January, and the increasing warning signs we were getting all through January and February. Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't take those warnings seriously enough as a country. We didn't put in place the testing regime we would have needed to try to isolate cases of COVID and track chains of transmission. We didn't get our hospitals ready. Uh, We didn't get the gear and equipment we needed. When we spoke back in, in March in New York, you were quite sober, but not overly alarmist. Is there anything in particular that has surprised you? I think I've been surprised by the overall slowness of the response. And it kind of shocks me that we're still sitting here, uh, you know, in late April and still uh, not really testing a significant number of the American people, really seeing healthcare workers still go into their hospitals, their workplaces without adequate gear, without adequate protection putting themselves at risk. We see more healthcare workers get sick every day. I think this is an example of when the decisive moments passed rather quietly and too quietly. If you look at the trajectory that the U.S. and Korea took and how different they were, uh, the Koreans really took that notice from the World Health Organization and dramatically ramped up their testing. The U.S. and Korea had their same first recorded case on the same day, January 20th. 10 days later, when the WHO gave that alert, Korea then radically ramped up testing, began to contact trace those people in February. And as a result, have seen only a few hundred deaths, not the 50,000 plus that we've seen in the United States. And you've talked uh, a bit as well already about our slowness in, in producing the equipment that we need to, to be effective, the PPE that, that frontline healthcare professionals need in order to uh, be safe. In your view, is it the administration, is it that they are disorganized or do they not have a strong view on how that ought to be handled? 
it is a hard challenge, and I don't think anyone should underestimate how difficult the challenge is. But nonetheless, it is a manageable challenge. Let me explain why. We do see in some areas a lessening of hospital admissions, and that might make people think, oh, you know what? We don't really need the PPE anymore. But we're about to embark on a complicated task of trying to increase the level of economic activity. We're going to send people who are not currently at work back to work. We're going to send people to work in offices. We're going to send them to work in restaurants, in other consumer-facing roles. And as we do, we're going to want those people to be protected as well. We're going to need them to have not the same kind of gear people in hospitals have, but have quality masks, quality gloves, other kinds of protective gear, depending on the circumstance and the job they have. We're already seeing huge numbers of deaths among grocery store workers and other service workers who come into contact with large numbers of people, with delivery workers and other people. That's going to grow, not shrink, as we reinvigorate the economy here. This idea that we're going to open the economy and that being significant is kind of ridiculous because, as every business person knows, uh, putting that open sign in the front window is not really the challenge to a business. The challenge is getting the customers to come in, uh, getting the workers to show up, and being able to be uh, profitable as you do business, right? And so it's all well and good for a governor to stand there and say, we're open for business in my state now. If the workers aren't safe on the job, if the customers feel like they're not going to be safe in a store, in a business, in a restaurant, well, what kind of opening will that be? And if, in fact, those fears are realized, if, in fact, people who go to stores and go to restaurants get the disease and spread the disease, well, that's not only a loss of faith in our government. That'll be a loss of faith in our economy. We have one chance to get this right. I'm going to take us back to you serving as President Obama's Ebola czar. I understand that you had a strategy at that time that you called PTFOTV. Can you uh, can you explain what that strategy was? The most important part of what we did in the Ebola response was take the necessary steps to fight Ebola. And that included putting 10,000 people on the ground in West Africa. It included sending 3,000 troops there, the first ever deployment of U.S. troops to fight an epidemic in our history, Operation United Assistance. It included preparing hospitals in this country to deal with cases of Ebola, getting them the equipment they needed, uh, getting testing up to where it needed to be. So we had 100 labs ready to process Ebola tests around the country, uh, developing a rapid point-of-care diagnostic test for Ebola that we used both in the United States and, more importantly, in West Africa. So that was the lion's share of what we did. But there was a piece of this that was also about communicating with the American public about Ebola, making them understand the risk. That meant not happy talking them, because we were quite clear that there was a risk that we would see cases of Ebola in the country. We talked honestly about that. We never denied the threat. We always were candid about the threat, but then also straightforward about what we were doing to meet that threat. And at times when anxiety rose, we did deploy the strategy that I called PTFOTV, which was essentially put Tony Fauci on television. I think the American people have seen a lot of Dr. Fauci during uh, COVID. Those of us who've known him for a long time know that not only is he one of America's most brilliant scientists and a leading clinician, 
Dr. Fauci treated one of the Ebola patients that got sick uh, here at, uh, he was the, the clinical lead on one of the patients uh, at the National Institutes of Health. But of course, he's also a masterful communicator about matters of health, medicine, and public health. And so uh, we always thought that the right way to handle this from a communications perspective was not to have the president uh, communicate a lot about this. President Obama did go out about once a week to update the public on where we were on fighting Ebola. But by and large, we relied on Dr. Fauci to communicate truthful, accurate, uh, realistic information to the public about the risks we were facing and about the steps we were taking to cope with those risks. Obviously, we as Americans believe deeply in, in free speech, but some observers have called for constraints uh, on social media uh, and the spread of information. What are your thoughts on that? The big platforms, Twitter, Facebook, need to be responsible. I've been critical of those platforms in other contexts, but I would say with regard to COVID, they've been pretty vigilant about trying to pull these things down as they crop up. The solution's going to have to come from uh, really effective communicators. It's going to have to go beyond governors. It's going to have to be trusted figures that people know in their own communities. You know, we found this when we fought Ebola in West Africa. There's a lot of differences, but some similarities. And one challenge we found was that, that people, you know, had skepticism about messages about what prevented Ebola, what prevented its transmission. And so we used community, not just national leaders, but community leaders to communicate that information, religious leaders to communicate that information, trusted local figures to communicate that information. People need to hear from people they believe. And I think conversely, the responsibility on celebrities, on sports figures, on other people who have voice and influence in our country to communicate responsibly, to communicate in a way that protects people, that responsibility really goes up. We see some of those people do a fantastic job. We see others spread misinformation about health, misinformation about you know what kind of treatments do and don't work and things like that. And this is really going to be a critical, critical aspect of kind of rolling out uh, prophylactic drugs, therapeutic drugs, and ultimately a vaccine. You've written about the fact that many Americans are unwilling to take vaccines and that that could be a huge impediment to our ability to beat COVID once uh, a vaccine were to become available. Can you explain more about that? And is there anything we can start doing now to start laying the groundwork to address that? What we know is that we have a reasonably effective vaccine for flu most years. And only about 55% of Americans take that vaccine every year. Presumably, more people will be inclined to take this vaccine because the danger that COVID poses is much greater than the danger that flu poses. And we obviously have a lot of public focus and attention on it now. But COVID's highly infectious. That means to produce widespread immunity, we're going to need to get that vaccination rate over 80%, maybe even as high as 90%. We're going to have to see and understand uh, so what that means is we're going to have to get significantly higher compliance for a new vaccine than we have for a vaccine that the American people have spent years getting comfortable with. The idea that it's fall, take your flu shot, go to your local drugstore, get your flu shot, so on and so forth. I mean, you know, we all know all the messaging on this. And even with that, there's lots of resistance or an unwillingness to do it. If we get a vaccine, if we get it made, if it's available, can we get people to take it? 
And I think that's going to be a, a real challenge for public health leaders next year. You know, we are in an election year. I'm curious to just get your thoughts a bit on on healthcare policy. We're starting to see stories of uh, people who are seriously ill, who are unable to receive treatment at hospitals for cancer, you know, other critical illnesses. How can we restore our healthcare system while at the same time fighting COVID? Look, this is a, a predictable reality that we see in every epidemic around the world, that in the end, almost always, more people die, or as many people die, or almost as many people die, from a failure to deliver medical care for other conditions as a result of the epidemic, as they do from the epidemic. For example, in West Africa during Ebola, we had more deaths from a surge in malaria because we were unable to distribute malaria pills because people were afraid to go into communities with Ebola or people were afraid to deal with healthcare workers because the healthcare workers were bringing Ebola, uh, all kinds of things. We saw a big surge in infant mortality and maternal deaths because of a lack of availability of uh, hospitals to do childbirth. And so this is a common thing we find with these epidemics, that the healthcare system gets overwhelmed, that people are afraid to access the healthcare system because the infectious disease is present in the healthcare system. And the combination of these two things leads to an increase in deaths from other causes around these epidemics. No matter what you do or don't think about COVID, uh, we need to get this under control in the strongest possible way so that we can have our healthcare system be safe for patients with other ailments, uh, have our healthcare system be safe so people feel comfortable accessing the healthcare system. We went through this in my family two weeks ago when my mother, who has a heart condition, uh, passed out. She needed to be brought to the hospital, and I was terrified that she would get COVID while she was in the hospital. And I think that that is leading people to not access medical care, to cause these other conditions to get worse. That's why getting COVID under control is important, not just to save lives from COVID, but to save lives from a lot of other things. So Ron, um, you know, looking ahead, what do you think are the major lessons learned from the last couple of months? And how do you see the, the COVID-19 crisis playing out for the rest of this year and into 2021? Yeah, you know, Eric, uh, sadly, we're going to get a second chance to decide if we can do this right a second time and perhaps even a third chance. So what we know about epidemics are, you know, we've all seen on TV over the past few months, these pictures of what an epidemic looks like. And on TV, it looks like a parabola that you used to see in high school geometry. You know, it, it has a smooth curve up and a smooth curve down and it tails off. Well, that's what a TV epidemic looks like. In real life, they look very different in two respects. First, well, they go up quickly, they go down slowly. And so we're seeing that right now. It's never just one parabola. They always come back. They come back because people lessen the kinds of control measures they put in place. We do less to socially distance. We get less careful. We get less careful about washing our hands and taking the various measures we're doing right now. And as we do that, the disease, which is never totally gone, begins to spread again, again, as it did before, quietly at first, and then eventually it explodes again. Now, that second explosion, that second wave, it may be national. It may be local. It may be very different in different places. It may come different times in different places. These things are not predictable. And so, but they will come. We will have a second wave. 
in many parts of the country. It will be different times, but it will come again. And so we will get tested on this again. And the question is the second time around, will we act more quickly? Will we act more quickly to get the tests in place? Will we act more quickly to get the kinds of medical system preparations in place? And will we act more quickly to shut down businesses, to shut down schools, to shut down gathering places? What we know is that every day of faster action makes a huge difference. We're talking about kind of laws of exponential spread and the ability, the, the days saved make a dramatic difference. And so I think the question is, when we face this a second time, city by city, state by state, or potentially nationally, will we be faster the second time around? And if so, we will get it under control faster. We'll save a lot of lives. Uh, but we are going to get this unfortunate do-over again in a few months. Well, let's hope, if nothing else, uh, the seriousness of the last, you know, six weeks will uh, sober, uh, you know, the entire world up and that we will you know, take the needed action uh, in order to prevent the resurgence that you just talked about. Ron, thank you so much. Uh, this was a fascinating conversation. I know you're a very busy person, so I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Eric. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for the great questions. That was Ron Klain. Ron served as chief of staff for both Al Gore and Joe Biden and as the United States Ebola response coordinator in 2014 and 2015. Ron has such relevant experience understanding how the various pieces of our government ought to be working together to take on this challenge. It's Ron's opinion that in this crisis, the U.S. has made a lot of mistakes and squandered some key opportunities. As he put it, quote, a decisive moment passing too quietly, end quote. And as we start to see the economy start to open back up, Ron said that the key challenge will not necessarily be to get an open sign up in the window, but to get customers and workers to come in. People can't return to work and society can't begin to thrive again if people don't feel safe. Ron warned that while we're making progress, we're likely to experience resurgence, which won't resemble our first wave. It could be city by city, state by state, or national. The question is, quote, the second time around, will we act more quickly? faster action makes a huge difference, end quote. We hope you'll join us next time for a brand new episode of Deciding Factors featuring another one of GLG's council members. Please subscribe and feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us at decidingfactors at glgroup.com if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics. For Deciding Factors and GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Stay safe out there and thanks for listening.